Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Hernán Cortés was born around 1485 in Medellín, Spain. Coming from a lesser noble family in the country, some report that he attended studies at the University of Salamanca for a brief period of time. But Cortés's mind was always focused on something greater. He always wanted to be a man in charge, a man of great stature, and someone of great wealth and great fortune. In 1504, he left Spain to go and seek out such an opportunity in the New World. Landing first in Santo Domingo, also known as Hispaniola, he settles in the town of Azua and serves for several years as a notary. But itching to get into action, he finds himself in an expedition to Cuba led by Juan Diego Velasquez in 1511. He worked for the government at that time and served briefly also as a mayor. But in 1518, he sought to command his own expedition into Mexico. He was initially granted the opportunity, but then his superior, Velasquez, canceled it. He knew that he could not truly trust Cortez and that Cortez's ambition would cause him to exceed all of the orders that he was given, providing for himself an opportunity to become rich and to become powerful. Cortez ignores the order of his superior Velasquez and sets out with several hundred men and ships in order to go to Mexico anyway. In February of 1519, his expedition reached the Mexican coast. and Cortez quickly becomes allies with some of the native people he encounters, but with others he used deadly force to remove the threat. This is where he began to understand the workings of the native people and that there was a division amongst the groups of people in Mexico and this was a weakness that he desired to manipulate as a means to his desired end. He marched to Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, and there he sees who we know today as Montezuma, also known as Moctezuma, and he takes him hostage and raids the city. The Aztecs eventually drove the Spanish from the city, but later Cortes returns in order to defeat them and to take the city in 1521. King Charles I of Spain, also known as the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, appointed him the governor of New Spain in the following year. Later, Cortes was to be removed from power. He traveled to Spain to plead his case, but was not reappointed the governorship. He sought opportunities throughout the rest of his life to try and achieve recognition, but he received little support from the Spanish court. He dies in 1547, going down in history as one of the most brutal conquerors to ever enter into the new world. Today's Leading by History will begin a journey to discover the meaning of race in the founding of Mexico, also known as New Spain and how the deeds and the actions of Cortes helped to create much confusion and sustained racial animosity until this day. Let's get ourselves ready to go into a discussion on racial betrayal and the meaning of race in the founding of Mexico and New Spain. Welcome to today's episode of Leading by History. 
We thank all of the supporters out there who have been listening uh, consistently to our podcast since we first started. And we're glad to see our listenership continue to increase uh, each uh, two week period. Today's episode, we want to talk about racial betrayal and the conquest of Mexico and really discuss the implications of race in the founding of New Spain. Now, today's episode is a little glimpse into some research that I started about four or five years ago when I was pushing through a master's uh, program in history and education. And I had some access to some very good professors there at the university. And in one of the courses that I took, which was a history of the Atlantic world, I started to delve into this concept of race in early America. And so in my studies, when I was uh, researching for the capstone uh, project for the course that I was taking, I started delving into this idea of race. And so uh, over time, I continued to make this an object of my study. And so in the process of submitting an article that I had done a couple of years ago to scholarly journals, I realized that I wanted to do an update to some of that research. So you could say that I've been really looking at this for over the last four or five years off and on. So today, as I uh, begin to, to put the final touches on an article for publication, I wanted to share with you some of the things that I was researching, because I think that within some of the events of the 16th century, we can begin to see a, a platform almost developing for the way in which people deal with race today. And so I think that the research that I've been doing on race and the founding of New Spain can help to maybe bring some light. Now, this is just going to be a short introduction into the topic, and maybe we'll come back at a later time and touch on it again. Now, race became a prevalent part of, of the new Spanish colonies, as in, in other colonies throughout the Americas. You had English settlements, uh, like the settlement of Georgia, that maintained some really distinct separations of race. But in this area of New Spain, uh, which was later Mexico and its historical uh, possessions, there was a separation that was ordered along the lines of specific racial classifications. Um, and, and it was a more racially mixed society. So wh where in, in the settlement of Georgia, there was clearly black and white. Here we see in New Spain that w there began to develop a caste system of race where there were sambos, mestizos um, and, and mulatos and, and, and a wide group of Spanish words to express the different groups of people that uh, were in society. And it sort of reminds me of the caste, the system of caste and race in South Africa. I remember being in undergraduate school and there was a lady who was from South Africa. Now, she looked like a light skinned black lady to me. And I remember talking with her and uh, saying, you know, what was it like to be black in South Africa? Because we all heard about Nelson Mandela and the fight for freedom and 
the, the situations of apartheid. And she became extremely offended. And she said to me, I am not black. I am colored. And to me, that was the strangest thing in the world because black people in America had gone many a decade to change the usage of the term colored into something more modern, which became Afro-American and later African-American. And now, uh, as you heard in our last uh, podcast, that the the scholarly uh, writings are now turning back to the term black. But I thought that it was very interesting that she was highly offended by being called black and wanted to let me know that she clearly was colored because that's the way that society in South Africa has what was set up during that time where there were whites and then below them were coloreds and then below them were the native Africans or the blacks. And so in the, the founding of, of, of New Spain in this area of Mexico, there was a lot that was going on in relationship to race. Now, even though there was a separation along specific racial lines, the mixtures there not only arose from problematic interactions between Spain and the people it was conquering, but it also provided opportunities for new difficulties to arise around race and classification in later years. And so we see now even Mexicans uh, and those from the areas of South America many times being in the past more inclined to refer to themselves as Hispanic than Latino. Now that is changing over time. We've always referred to the people of the Caribbean area that were of Spanish and Native American descent as Latinos. And so I always wondered about the difference there. But I really think that much of that has its root in how race was dealt with in the founding of New Spain. Now, uh, the Spanish not only brought Spanish soldiers with them for the conquest of Mexico when they began to subjugate the areas, but they also brought African and Indian warriors who also were considered conquistadors or conquerors. Now, there's no way that this did not lay a foundation for racial dilemmas for the future. Now, the Spanish were supplemented by a few hundred native uh, Indians and a small number of Africans who helped them in the conquering of Mexico. Now, remember, you had a gentleman by the name of Hernan Cortez. And uh, Cortez is a very unique figure, especially in the founding of, of Mexico. And we'll talk a little bit more about him as, as we move along. Now, the question that I had as I was doing the research was, why would native people help a group of invaders to conquer other native people? Like, did they not realize that this was going to go extremely bad for them in the long term? Like, if there are people coming in to conquer your brothers and sisters, and you're trying to save your own group of people, but eventually you're not going to be seen as too different than, than they, right? And so uh, why would Africans who had witnessed the captivity of their, their own people, right? Since the 1490s, the Portuguese were, uh, you know, having exploits in uh, certain parts of uh, West Africa. Why would they come to the Americas to help conquer another non-European people? Now, when the Spanish arrived at a place called uh, Tlaxcala, uh, they, they were initially met with a cry of war, of course. 
But soon the people of Tlaxcala had opened their uh, the doors to the Spanish and they even began to share their women with them. Now, uh, some of these women were given as slaves, right? And some of them were captured from other tribes, but they also shared their own women, women with them. Now, Malinche is a figure that is very well known in the area of Mexico. Now, Malinche was a, a woman of Tlaxcala and she was given to Cortez and uh, she became one of his most uh, advantageous gifts. Now, uh, this woman, uh, Malinche, Marina, her Native American name was Malinsen. She was uh, one of the most advantageous gifts, as I said. And, and she was, this woman was a translator for Cortez, but she also bore him children once they became romantically involved. Now, it's clear that she, like other non-European conquistadors that aided the Spanish, would later be viewed by some of her own people as a traitor. To help European conquerors subdue other non-European communities or to displace or destroy entire tribes of people, I mean, to help someone do that, that would have to be the work of someone with no racial loyalty. I mean, this is the mode of thinking which provides the context for the research that I've been doing. Now, though current literature details the experiences of native people within and around the Aztec Empire during the time of Spanish invasion, very little of the literature discusses the notion of racial betrayal, especially in respect to the Mexican conquest. And that's what made me want to look deeper into this because there are a lot of primary sources. There's a lot of good research to pull from here, but a lot of it didn't deal with this concept of racial betrayal. Now, we've got accounts from soldiers uh, under the leadership of Cortez. We've got Cortez's uh, writings as well. And we also have some writing from uh, native people uh, with whom the Spanish interacted. Now, th these sources are critical in determining the existing thoughts of the participants in the conquest. And that's why having primary source documents is so important to the historian. Now, for those who are listening that don't know what a primary source is, you have something that's called a, a primary source document. You have something that's called a secondary source document. Now, a primary source document is something that is from the time period that's being researched, right? So if we were going to study about the history of Thomas Jefferson, then anything that would be written by Thomas Jefferson himself would be considered a primary source. Something written maybe by a friend of Thomas Jefferson would be considered a secondary source. Now, in the scholarly literature, there's also something that's called a monograph. And a monograph is, is a writing that deals specifically with an area of content. And so someone who would be writing specifically about the life of Thomas Jefferson, that person's writing would be considered a, a monograph. Again, these primary source documents are critical in being able to piece together the ideas of the past, the thoughts of the people during the time, and to be able to take a historical analysis of historical perspective of people and people groups. Now, historic literature helps to provide interesting and sometimes unique insight into subject matter, and secondary sources are good. But it's even more important to hear as many voices as possible directly from the sources.
So we want to find the truth concerning this idea of race and betrayal in the conquest of Mexico, because maybe it can help us understand people's perceptions of race today. Now, Columbus opened the door for Spanish incursion into the New World in 1492. And when he arrived on the island, which is believed today to have been the Dominican Republic, he brought with him at least one African named Diego. Now, there's an article by Matthew Restall, and it was, it's called Black Conquistadors, Armed Africans in Early Spanish America. This was the document that really set me on the course of digging deeper. And I just wanted to share with you a few of the uh, resources that I used uh, for the study. Now, again, Matthew Restall's work, Black Conquistadors, is a powerful work that really lays out an understanding of black people in the founding of, of Mexico. Now, I got some actual Spanish documents. There was one that was published in 1866 in microfilm. It's called Cartas y Relaciones de Hernán Cortés al Emperador Carlos. It was edited by Pascual de Gañagos and was published in 1866. Now, the book's name, you know, Letters and Things Related from Hernán Cortés to Emperor Carlos. Now, there's another book called Historia Verdadera de la Conquista de la Nueva España, and this was written by a man named Bernal Díaz del Castillo, and this was published in uh, 1904. It was a four-volume set done in Mexico, and that's the, the true history of the conquest of New Spain. Being that I have a little bit of use of the Spanish language, uh, there, there was a time I, I actually... Let me say this. I started off studying this because I actually lived in Mexico for a summer some years ago when I was getting my certification in advanced Spanish. I haven't been faithful in using my Spanish as much as I should have. But this research, honestly, was another excuse to delve back into Spanish literature. And so I've been pulling out some other things as I've been, you know, rebuilding some of this early research and making it more robust I actually came across some other texts that I began to incorporate as well. Um, another book that's in the Spanish language is called Indios Conquistadores en la Descripción de la Ciudad y Provincia de Tlaxcala. And this was written by Diego Muñoz Carmago. The title means the Indian conquest in the descriptions of the city and province of Tlaxcala. And this was actually uh, recently published in November of, of 2018. And this has some really powerful information in it as well. And uh, there's another Spanish book that I came across. It's called El Establecimiento Militar de Gente de Color Libre en México Colonial de la Conquista hasta la Independencia. And it means the, the military establishment of people of color, free people of color in uh, colonial Mexico and the conquest of Mexico until its independence. And so many of these uh, titles really gave a lot of insight into uh, what I was studying. Now, some of the monographs and, and secondary sources that I had, I had a book called a... Um, La Malinche in Mexican Literature from History to Myth, written by uh, Sandra Cypress. 
a victimized woman, La Malinche, by uh, Tether Campbell, which was an article in Historia. And uh, Amy Kaminsky, in, in her feminist studies, uh, the Feminist Studies Journal, writes an article called Gender, Race, and Rasa. And I thought that there was some very interesting ideas that she uh, entertained there. And then Maria Martinez wrote this book called The Black Blood of New Spain, uh, Limpi- uh, Limpieza de Sangre, Racial Violence and Gendered Power in Early, Early Colonial Mexico. And that was in the William & Mary Quarterly. So I got some really good books. I don't want to go through the in- entire list because there, there are, there's a lot there, but I wanted to share with you some of these books and also have an excuse to speak a little bit of Spanish <laughs> along the way, right, until we get that back together. So here's the thing. History has been able to maintain documentation of, of several black or African conquistadors. We want to talk about not only this person called Diego that came with Columbus, but also Restall informs us that some accounts detail a mulatto named Alonzo Pietro or Prieto as the pilot of the Nina uh, on Colombia's first voyage. And even one of the conquistadores or conquerors who accompanied Hernán Cortés was an African whose name was Juan Garrido, okay? And uh, in his letter to the king of Spain, Garrido informs that he was uh, de color negro vecino. He was a black resident of the city of Mexico and that he was aiding Cortes in what he called the conquests and pacifications of, of, of the same. Now, again, history has been able to maintain documentation of several black or African conquistadors. Now, from Juan Bardales in Honduras to Juan Beltran in Chile, the history of conquest in the Americas included several non-Europeans. Now, from the time of Garrido going forward, the black African presence in the conquest of the New World uh, was a documented reality. And it would stand to reason that the Spanish, being very prideful about the superiority of their bloodline, would have loathed the sharing of victory with these, these negros, right? These blacks. But yet the warrior tradition in Africa, as well as the ability of these former slaves to survive the Middle Passage, may have made their suitability for aid in the conquest more desirable, you know, to the Spanish that that brought them. Because the real end goal for them was to win and to have conquest. And if they in the process had to allow, you know, a handful or a dozen of non-Europeans to take part in that, well, you know, to the winner goes the spoils, right? Uh, Napoleon was said to have stated when he was on uh, St. Helena, history is a lie agreed upon by the winners, right? So you could easily write these people out of the history, which is why there's not a whole lot written about them. And that's what, that's what makes this study that I'm doing so important. Now, the real question is why would these former slaves, right? These free men, why would they willingly and willfully follow the Spanish into conquering the new world. Now, there could be several reasons why. Because maybe, as we've seen throughout the history of America, maybe these black men were seeking to prove that they were men, that they could do the same work that the Spanish were doing, that they could help to conquer the same lands, that they could fight just as long and just as hard. And maybe this was a way of them uh, thinking that they would earn their respect from their uh, former captors. Now, slavery as practiced by European nations was 
It was horrid and inhumane, right? Traditional slavery amongst Africans was generally a type of third class citizenship. So a lot of times when people talk about, well, you know, Africans enslaved Africans, you can't compare what took place in the Americas to the things that were done uh, in Africa. It just wasn't the same. And any uh, precursory uh, research of the slave trade and its impact even in America uh, would show you that there was something different happening on this end of the globe. Now, in Africa, though slaves or enslaved people would have lacked the rights of full citizens, they were still not subjected to all of the brutal treatments and punishments that were meted out in the transatlantic slave trade. Slaves who were able to obtain freedom from amongst the Spanish, the idea of being a soldier, even if for the cause of Spanish conquest, was without a doubt more desirable than the wretched conditions they endured as enslaved people, right? And a greater goal must have been in mind for these uh, black conquistadors, right? There was no context for connecting black Africans to the native Indians they would soon help to subdue. You know, in modern society, many Africans and Native Americans see themselves as brothers tied via the exploits of European colonialism. And as, as victims of the European conquest, these two people groups have over time built a framework for brotherly interface. Such a context as we see today was uh, really non-existent in the 16th century. And so the blacks were just as strange to the Native people as the Europeans were. And even uh, Motecusoma or Moctezuma, also known as Montezuma, um, you know, he refers to, to blacks who attend to Cortez as, quote, soiled gods due to their dark skin, right? And therefore, black Africans would have had no connection to native Indian culture, which would cause remorse for the tragedies they would help create for the Indians. And so maybe this also adds to the idea that there was this, um, this strangeness between the cultures. But now that may not be the case overall because Dr. Ivan Van Sertema did research in the 1990s in his book, They Came Before Columbus, to show that there was actually an African presence in the Americas prior to uh, Columbus. Right. And so he points to um, the Olmec people uh, whose civilization uh, started somewhere around what historians date to be about 1500 BCE or before the Common Era. So there's some interesting things here. And all we're doing is just fleshing it out and just, uh, you know, uh, ser searching for the truth in the matter. Now, by 1519, Cortez was moving towards the interior of Mexico and he had defied his commander. Diego Velasquez, who forbade him from beginning the journey because he he didn't trust Cortez's loyalty. You know, Cortez was always out for power. I mean, until his dying day, his his desire was always to be in charge. He he wanted to be some kind of king, emperor, governor. He he wanted to be in charge. So Velasquez thought that Cortez intended to gain power and to eventually take command of the New World colony, and he had the type of charisma to do so. Now, Cortez only had about three or four hundred men under his command, and the Aztec Empire was said to have a population totaling some 300,000. So how in the world were they going to pull this off? So the Spanish were only one percent of the total Aztec population. In simple math, 
makes it clear that what Cortez was proposing and trying to take over the Aztec Empire was an impossibility, right? It, it, it just, it was impossible. Or so we thought. And so therefore, the conquering of Mexico could never have been done without the help of indigenous agents. I mean, that's the bottom line. And this is where the Indian conquistadors come into play. But what native Indian, what indigenous person would help an invading people to conquer his own land? Now, Cortez sets out uh, from Veracruz, right? And he, he, he meets with Mayan and Aztec sub-tribes who were displeased with overall Aztec rule. So this is where we see the idea of the dividing and conquering. And, and there were some tribes like those in Tlaxcala who would agree to help him in his war against the Aztec Empire. Now, many natives even converted to Christianity and accepted the terms of vassalage to the Spanish king. Now, the core of Cortez's fighting force was his men. And the remainder of his force was made up of the Mayan and Aztec rebels who rejected the rule of Montezuma or Montezuma. Now, along the journey, the Spanish made alliances with several groups of natives. Um, originally, they were enemies and attackers, but then some of them began to be loyal to the Spanish. Now, the Tlaxcalans were never conquered by the Aztecs and were one of their fiercest en enemies. And they informed Cortes that they hated the great ruler, Montecuzoma, and uh, waged war against him regularly. Now, there is a, a writer by the name of Miguel Leon Portilla who wrote a book called Broken Spears. And, and he details that there was a discussion of the Tlaxcalans after the Tacoac tribe was defeated, saying the Otomi is a brave warrior, but he was helpless against them. They scorned him as a mere nothing. We should go over to their side and we should make friends with them and be their allies. If not, they will destroy us too. Here we see into the mind through that that quote from a primary source that this was another reason why native people would be desiring to help the Spanish uh, to conquer. And it makes it clear that the Tlaxcalans were concerned for their very survival. And so they either joined with the Spanish or opposed them and met the fate of the other native peoples which fell before them. So they chose to, to join them. When the Tlaxcalan chiefs and that, that word Tlaxcalan is spelled T-L-A-X-C-A-L-A-N, Tlaxcalan. When the, when the Tlaxcalan chiefs made their treaty with the Spanish, they sealed it with the gifts of food and women. And one of the women was called Malenal. And she would later be known as Malinche, Doña Marina. She had many names, Malintzin, because she had been an enslaved person that had been traded around. Well, this woman became Cortez's personal translator and uh, later on his concubine. She was fluent in Aztec and also fluent in Mayan. And the Spanish were also informed of a man named Jerónimo de Aguilar, who was being held prisoner by a group of Maya. And Aguilar had landed on the mainland some years previous and was captured by the Maya. The conquistadors rescued Aguilar from his bonds and found him to be fluent in Mayan. He became a great advantage for Cortez as a translator. Now, along with Malenal, Cortez had just what he needed to make important contacts with local leaders and, and to persuade them to be a part of, of his call. 
Now, there's a writer that I discussed earlier, Tether Campbell, in her uh, writing, The Victimized Woman, La Malinche. She informs us that this Malinal, that she was the daughter of a native lord. And so we wonder why would, would she desire to help foreign invaders that clearly plan to attack her native land? But Campbell writes that this Doña Marina, as she was later called after becoming Cortez's uh, concubine slash wife, if you will, or La Malinche, that her father was a, a leader of the, of the noble Aztec family and her social status afforded her the opportunity to receive a higher education. According to legend, her father had died upon her mother's remarriage to another uh, a leader with whom she had a son. And then Malinton was given away as a servant because her presence in the family was a continual source of issue, right? Her stepfather believed that she would stand in the way of his own son's inheritance. So this is the condition in which the Spanish uh, found her because she was given to a Tabasco chief as a slave or an enslaved person. So this is how the Spanish found her. So why would she help Cortez? You know, Cortez offered her freedom and, and purpose as well as an opportunity to avenge the cruel predicament that she was in. Now, after she got with Cortez, she was baptized as a Catholic. And again, she was given the name Doña Marina. She went on every Spanish expedition. She was said to, to have gone on every Spanish expedition, even at nighttime. Now, thousands of natives converted to Christianity due to their ability to make the message of the church clear in the language of the hearers. And some had considered that the reason she poured so much of herself into her Spanish duties was actually a desire to save her people from annihilation. Spanish were conquering tribe after tribe, and if she could bring more native people into the arms of the Spanish for peace, then their bloodshed could be avoided. Now, I want you to think about that because this is very interesting as we talked about those Africans who would be helping the Spanish. Why would you help the people who once had you enslaved? Why would you help them to enslave another group of non-European people? But everybody had their reasons why, and it wasn't always for personal glory or personal gain for the sake of personal glory and gain. Sometimes it was because of a greater cause. Those African conquistadors were helping to show that African people, that black people had the ability to be soldiers, had the ability to express loyalty, had the ability to be about their business, had the ability to think uh, strategically and militarily. And so they were doing a service for other black people at length because of their work and their actions there. And so here it is uh, believed by some that La Malinche, um, Doña Marina, that she was doing what she was doing because she actually had the best interest of her people at heart. So, you know, when you look at it this way, then the question is, was she really a traitor to her race? Were the African conquistadors really traitors to their race? All right. Now, today, Doña Marina is called La Malinche in Mexico. And this term is meant to be understood as a traitor to her people. She's considered a, quote, uh, whore by the locals. And she's, she's noted with giving birth to the first mestizo, a son by the name of Don Martin Cortez. Now, Martin was to later be executed by the Spanish for conspiracy against the Spanish viceroy. 
Now, according to uh, Tether Campbell, the effect that she had on, quote, the male psyche was that she either challenged his power or was an affirmation of his inability to protect her. Now, La Malinche to the Mexican people embodies two national myths. And one shows her creative force, while the other demonstrates her destructive force. And, and Campbell continues in saying that, quote, as the mother of Cortez's son, she's been credited as the creator of the Mexican race. By creating that new race, she also bears the blame for the downfall of the Aztec people. That's pretty powerful. So even though she creates the Mexican race, they say, she's still responsible for there being a Mexican race, which means there had to be first a destruction of the Aztec people from, from whom the Mexican people were derived, right? Through, through miscegenation and racial mixing. Now, many have given her the title in Mexico as traitor of the race. Now, what exactly does race have to do with the decisions made almost 500 years ago? Now, I told you that Amy Kaminsky in her article in Feminist Studies uh, called Gender, Race and Rasa, uh, you know, Kaminsky informs us that race is nothing more than, quote, behavioral expectations rationalized through biology. I like that. Race is nothing more than behavioral expectations rationalized through biology. And she says racial metaphors range from the invisibly internal to the blatantly external, meaning blood and skin color. And so therefore, the modern concept of what we call race is just that. It's modern and it's been developed over centuries and it includes the history of past events within its context. Now, Kaminsky also makes clear that race was initially predicated upon language and not skin color in the 16th century. And she continues in stating that, quote, racial differentiation in Europe was not, quote, binary, but multiple. You know, we know that race is a social construct, as these have a tendency to expand over time as social institutions and views change the construct also expands and is only partially relevant within the historical context. So in other words, the idea of a, quote, African race or a, quote, Native American race did not exist in the day of Cortez. And so therefore, the way that we think about race and the way that we think about traitors to race would have been different in the way that those people would have understood that. That perspective there, the historical perspective, changes then how we might want to interpret their actions in terms of what we understand race betrayal to be today. Native Indians nor Africans identify with any initial commitment or responsibility to anyone outside of their unique tribes. Let's deal with that. We know in Africa that there were African tribes that were at war with each other. We know in the Americas that there were American tribes, Native tribes that were at war with each other. And so their racial identity or the identification was with their unique tribe as opposed to a massive race of people. There were a couple of things that made Spanish conquest successful. You know, you had epidemic disease, you had a disunity of the native people, and then you had, you know, metal weapons. So we're going to do this episode in two parts, and I will have a part two to this episode to continue through the process of talking about uh, the history of race and the founding of Mexico. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast, and we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace. Peace.